This morning, for, for instance, or I should say congratulations on coming back. You made it to Judges 2. I was a little concerned who might not come back. But thank you for being here this morning as we continue in Judges 2 and Judges 3 this morning. As Jonathan just read, that text right there serves as a key text really for the entire book of Judges. If you'll remember last week when we were discussing chapter 1, we came across that key phrase, did not drive out. And you should have underlined that in your Bible. It's in verse 27 of chapter 1, 29, 30, 31, 32, and 33. Not driving out the Canaanites caused the Israelites to ultimately be tempted by these gods and be tempted by the practices and the culture of the Canaanite people. The text tells us that these gods, these foreign nations, became a snare to the people of Israel. I just completed a book entitled, We Become What We Worship, and it is a biblical theology of idolatry. So the author traces, how does idolatry look in the book of Genesis? How does it look in the book of Leviticus? Ezra, so on and so forth. And the primary premise that he discusses in that book is this key phrase, what people revere, they resemble, either for ruin or restoration. The book of Judges is in many ways a story about idolatry. It's a story of the Israelites trusting in created things rather than the creator. Idols ultimately refuse to give us what we actually want. Christopher Wright wrote a book called The Mission of God, and this is what he says in the book. The primal problem with idolatry is that it blurs the distinction between the creator God and the creation. This both damages creation, including ourselves, and diminishes the glory of the creator. Since God's mission is to restore creation to its full original purpose of bringing all glory to God himself and thereby to enable all creation to enjoy the fullness of blessings that he desires for it. God battles against all forms of idolatry, and he calls us to join him in that conflict. God hates idolatry, and so much of the book of Judges is about that key issue. So as we work our way through chapter 2 and the beginning of chapter 3 today, we're going to focus on primarily three points. Number one, a faithless generation. Number two, a faithful God. And number three, a failed test. Number one, a faithless generation. Number two, a faithful God. And number three, a failed test. Number one, a faithless generation. When you read verses 6 through 10 of chapter 2, it almost seems like the author of Judges is going backwards. What do I mean by that? Because when we read last week in chapter 1, Joshua was already dead. But here in 2, 6 to 10, he brings up Joshua again. Why is the author doing this? Looking back allows the narrator to communicate a clearer story. So in other words, he's providing context to how the Israelites got to this point. Look at verse 6. It says, when Joshua dismissed the people, the people of Israel went 
each to his own inheritance to take possession of the land. And that is exactly what they were supposed to do. But we learn in chapter 1 that when they went back to take possession of the land, they did not fully conquer the land. They occupied it, but they did not drive out the other nations. Instead, they decided to either allow them to continue to live or subject them to forced labor. And verse 7 tells us that as long as Joshua was alive, the people were obedient and they served the Lord. But then look at verse 10 of chapter 2. This honestly is the verse that really is the thesis of the entire book of Judges. It says, All that generation also, talking about Joshua's generation, were gathered to their fathers, and there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. Now, the question has to be asked, how does this happen? How does a people, the Israelites, so rich in history, so rich in heritage, in storytelling, in passing down their stories on to the next generation, how is it possible that what can be said here in verse 10 actually happens? And I would submit to you this morning that it is not as hard to do as you think it is. Now, we have to go back and realize that God had set up a plan throughout Scripture to ensure that what we read about in verse 10 actually doesn't happen. Look at some of these verses. Deuteronomy 6, 6 to 9, a passage that you probably know well. It says, And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. So God had equipped Israelite parents, he had challenged these Israelite parents to heed the words of this text. In other words, in all activities of life, discuss the faithfulness of God. Discuss what God has done by delivering his children from Egyptian bondage and into the promised land. God challenged the Israelite parents to do this in every facet of their lives. But then, number two, God also set up festivals, memorials, and all sorts of other customs where the community would gather to remember what God had done. Look at Exodus 12, 26 and 27. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians, but spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and worshipped. All of the festivals, all of the celebrations that you read about in the Old Testament law, they have a purpose. And it is to gather all of the families together and to remember how God had provided for his people. And then number three, the leaders of Israel 
We're also to have a role in helping the people to remember. Look at Deuteronomy 31, 9 to 13. Then Moses wrote this law, and he gave it to the priests, the sons of Levi, who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, and to all the elders of Israel. And Moses commanded them, at the end of every seven years, at the set time in the year of release, at the Feast of Booths, when all Israel comes to appear before the Lord your God at the place that he will choose. You shall read this law before all Israel in their hearing. Assemble the people, men, women, and little ones, and the sojourner within your towns, that they may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God and be careful to do all the works of this law, that their children who have not known it may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God as long as you live in the land that you are going over the Jordan to possess. Now, that's a lot of scripture I just read there. But I want you to see that it certainly was not failure on God's part that this new generation of people was not remembering God or the works that he did. One of two things is happening here. Either the system that God set up was being completely ignored by the Israelites, or they continue to participate in these activities, but only ritualistically and not at the heart level. Brothers and sisters, there is a huge difference between just sitting in this room as a warm body versus actively engaging in the corporate worship setting. You can leave here today and literally have gotten nothing out of the service. You can leave here today and know nothing more about the Bible if all you do is just sit and daydream. And it's very possible that this generation of Israelites were not really given a clear indication of the reason why, but they either stopped participating in these activities or they went through them, but they didn't think about what they were doing at all. They just went through the motions. Now, there is a connection in this passage between knowing Yahweh, or God, and knowing what he did for his people. Think about it for a moment. It's the same way for all of those in this room who are in Christ. There is intellectual knowledge about Jesus Christ, but there's also experiential knowledge about how he has actually worked in your life. And if we're not careful, we can drift to one of either two extremes. We can be so consumed with knowledge about Jesus from his word, from the gospels, that we know all of the facts about Jesus, but we don't allow it to actually transform our hearts. But there's also those who can talk about all the ways that God transforms their hearts, but they don't actually draw it from the scriptures. So in other words, God told me to do this, or God told me to do that. And my question always is, where did he show you to do that? Where did he tell you to do that? Because he doesn't tell you to do it if it's not from his word. The revealed word of God is how he speaks to us. So don't buy the line when people will tell you really crazy things that the Lord did them to do, but they either directly contradict scripture or they're nowhere to be found in scripture always challenge people to open up their bibles and sh show me where god is telling you to do this so we can be guilty of either extreme i'm more prone to be on this side 
consumed with biblical knowledge and the intellectual knowledge about Jesus. And it's real easy to know all the stuff in your mind without letting it come out in the way that you live your life. So we have to guard our hearts and our minds against either ones of those extremes, the emotional extreme or the intellectual extreme. We are tasked as Christians to know God as revealed in his word, but also to communicate how our knowledge of God in his word helps us in the experiences of everyday life. Heed the warning in this passage. The spiritual growth and maturity of the next generation does not just happen automatically. We have to be intentional in doing so. The generation that we read about here in the book of Judges was not properly discipled. There's no other way to say it. And the results, as we will continue to work our way through this book, are catastrophic. So grandparents... Parents, future parents in the room today, barring a miraculous display of God's grace in the lives of your children, accidental or half-hearted discipleship for your family will not cut it. Perhaps in 1950, it would have cut it when the culture, generally speaking, still had this religious undertone of Christianity to it. But in 2022, there is no discipleship by osmosis. It will not work. It doesn't work in Dothan, Alabama. It doesn't work in New York City. It doesn't work in Los Angeles. It doesn't work anywhere around the world. You cannot just expect by dropping your children or your grandchildren off at church for a couple hours on Sunday morning. You cannot expect that to be enough to sustain them when they get sent out into the world. And we can say with our lips all that we want that the spiritual development of our children and our grandchildren is the most important thing in our lives, but our children and grandchildren are smart. They know when we're simply giving lip service to that. And when we prioritize travel ball and cheerleading, vacations, academic achievements, and scholarships, all with a a nod to God on the side. Your children and grandchildren are not fooled. They know what you actually care about. And it's based on the way that you live your life. So we don't need to be surprised when our children and grandchildren grow up and they reflect the generation that we read about here in verse 10. Is verse 10 of Judges 2 really what you want for your children and your grandchildren? The answer I know for all of you is of course not. So be intentional in training them up in the ways of the Lord. Now the scariest part of this passage is the results of what we see of this faithless generation. Look at verses 11 through 15. The people worshiped the false gods of the nations that they were supposed to drive out. And God's response to that was anger, which manifested in the form of giving them up to all of these other nations. God didn't actively punish the Israelites. Instead, he just allowed these other nations to have the strength to defeat them in these various battles. 
the reason that all of these other nations that we read about were successful against the Israelites is because God gave these opposing nations the strength to defeat his people. God punished Israel by giving strength to its enemies because this faithless generation grew up not knowing God and what he had done for his people And so they were enticed and drawn away by the false gods of all of these other nations. Things look incredibly grim for the nation of Israel at this point in the story. But thankfully, look at verse 16. We serve a faithful God. Verse 16 says, Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Did God save his people because they were worthy to be saved? No. He did it because he's faithful to the covenant that he had made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob those many, many years ago. Make the application for your own relationship to Jesus Christ here. Did God save you because you earned it or deserved it? No. He did it for his glory so that his name can be made known in Dothan, Alabama and to all the nations of the world. And although God provided these judges, the people did not listen to the judges. Look at verse 17. They whored after other gods and bowed down to them. I bet you didn't come to church expecting to hear that word today. The metaphor that is being used here is exactly what it is. This metaphor of prostitution is used in Judges and by other prophets like Hosea, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel to indicate that Yahweh is, or excuse me, God's people are unfaithful to God. And they have cheated on God. With these various other gods, Yahweh's relationship with Israel is regularly communicated throughout the Old Testament in marital terms. But in this particular instance, in the book of Judges, Israel was being seduced by these false fertility gods, the gods of Baal. And here's how it worked. These Canaanite men would go into a Baal shrine and they would have intercourse with a cult prostitute. And that was how you appeased Baal. And by engaging in that activity, Baal would send grain and wine and oil and rain. So the Israelite men saw the Canaanites engaging in these behaviors and they decided to do the same thing. Instead of trusting God to provide grain and wine and oil and rain, they were also frequenting these shrines of Baal and engaging in this evil behavior to appease the gods so that they could receive the blessings. It's not just metaphorically that the Israelites hoard after these other gods. They were literally doing it. The book of Judges provides two cycles. If you've ever studied the book of Judges, you know about this cycle. Oftentimes, we, we talk about one cycle. But Daniel Block, in his commentary, actually gives us two cycles, and I really like 
the dichotomy between these two. He gives the cycle that Israel uses and the cycle that God himself uses. So I'm going to communicate both of these cycles to you. Write them down in your Bible because as we work our way through all of the various judges, you see this exact formula laid out. The first cycle is the cycle that the Israelites use. And that is apostasy or sin, oppression, groaning, and then deliverance. That's the cycle that Israel uses throughout the book of Judges. So how does that work out? Throughout the book of Judges, Israelites sin by worshiping false gods. This other nation comes in and oppresses them. They cry out to God, and then God delivers them through raising up a judge. But God himself also has a cycle in this book. And here's how it works. Anger for their unfaithfulness. Punishment as the consequences for their unfaithfulness. He relents of his punishment or he changes his mind. And then number four, he delivers them by offering up the judge. So let me repeat it. The first cycle, the cycle of Israel. Sin, oppression, groaning, deliverance. God's cycle, anger, punishment. He changes his mind and he delivers them by the raising up of a judge. Look at verses 18 and 19 of chapter 2 to further clarify. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back. And they were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them, and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. One commentator says it like this. In the judges' period, Israel was characterized by sheer, mind-boggling, willful persistence in self-destructive rebellion. And in spite of all of that, God remained faithful to his people through the raising up of these various judges. So, as followers of Jesus who battle sin every single day, your sin does not diminish the grace and the mercy that Jesus offers his people. If you are in Christ, God poured out his judgment on his son in your place for you. Instead of that wrath, instead of that judgment being poured out on you, it is poured out on Jesus himself. So all that are in Christ this morning, every morning we wake up, we drink deeply from the grace and the mercy of our God. But number three, we also see in this passage a failed test. Even when... God demonstrates his grace and mercy towards us. We still experience consequences for our disobedience. And those consequences and judges are spelled out in verses 20 to 23. We see an indication of God's anger because look at verse 20. It's very interesting in the ESV. It says, this people have transgressed my covenant. That's significant. He doesn't say his people. He says, this people. He's not even calling the Israelites his people anymore in this passage. The Hebrew word for this that is used there 
is the same word that the author of Judges uses to describe the Canaanite tribes in verses 21 and 23. So this language that is being used here gives us a sense of the separation between God and his people at this point in the story. God chose to leave these Canaanite nations to test his people to see if they would maintain faithfulness to God. And we know the answer. They failed the test. Look at what Block says in his commentary, when Yahweh expresses his determination that the present generation of Israelites should learn war, his concern is not primarily that they learn how to conduct war, but that they learn the nature and significance of this war. They have entered the land as Yahweh's covenant people with the mandate to drive out the Canaanites and to claim it as his gift to them. And the continued presence of the Canaanites represents a test whether or not they will accept Yahweh as their sovereign and their responsibilities in fulfilling his agenda. In God's sovereign plan, he found it important that this generation of Israelites pledge their faithfulness to him by driving out all of these other nations, and they fail the test. And we know that because of what we read last week in chapter 1, when they did not drive out all of these Canaanites time and time again. Instead of exterminating these nations, they subject them to forced labor. They come and live alongside of them. The Israelites failed the test, when I was a senior in high school taking anatomy, I got a 47 out of 100 on an anatomy test. You know what the consequences were for that? As an 18-year-old, getting a call from my teacher to my parents. And when I came home from school that day, I reaped the consequences of that call. In the same way, God delivers his people over to these nations as a consequence for their disobedience to what he had clearly and directly and explicitly told them to do. And verse 6 communicates to us the ramifications of that failed test in chapter 3. This is so key. It says, And their daughters they took to themselves for wives, and their own daughters, talking about Israel, they gave to their sons and they served their gods. Why did God want them to drive out all of these Canaanite nations? Because of what we read about in verse 6. God knew that they would give in. He knew that they would begin to intermingle and Yahweh would no longer reign supreme. It's the same thing that happens to Solomon. When he has these 10,000 wives and concubines, he begins serving all of these various gods and Yahweh no longer has the priority in his heart. Instead of wiping out these nations, the Israelites had assimilated with these Canaanite nations. They abandoned Yahweh. They violated the covenant and they endured the consequences as a result. Remember the quote that I shared with you at the very beginning from that book on idolatry. What people revere, they resemble, either for ruin or restoration. Israel had turned their hearts 
toward the gods of the Canaanites, and it ultimately leads to their destruction. The book of Judges is a story of God's people assimilating into the culture. We as Christians have to walk a very fine line between being in the world while still maintaining holiness from the world. And that is a very challenging line to walk. As our graduating seniors are getting ready to leave and go off to jobs and various schools, they will learn very quickly that there is a fine line between being in the world but also maintaining holiness before God. And we all learn it at different rates. Some learn it faster than others. But the good news is, for all of us in this room that are in Christ, His Spirit dwells in our hearts. And so He is the guide. He is the guide for us. When we begin to feel like perhaps we're drifting too much into the world, that is when the Holy Spirit comes in and tells us, you need to keep that line. You need to be very careful. But it is possible to quench the Holy Spirit. So my challenge to all of these graduating seniors and, and to everyone in that room, in the room for that matter, is to make sure that you are engaged in his church, in the word, surrounding yourselves by other brothers and sisters in Christ so that you do not quench the spirit in your heart. Because that line is challenging. And what we don't want to do is become a monk and have no relationships with lost people. But we also don't want to do the opposite and have no connection whatsoever to Christ or his church. And the one who teaches us how to do that is the Holy Spirit that indwells within our hearts. We, as followers of Jesus, can transform the culture in which we live. We do not have to assimilate to it. We also do not have to completely abandon it. We can transform it because we have the Spirit of God in our hearts. Have relationships with lost people. Get to know your neighbors, but act differently from them. Help them to see that there is something different about the way that you live your life as opposed to them. Call people to repentance and faith in Christ. Transform the culture. Do not assimilate as we see the Israelites doing in this passage today. Let's pray. Father, I'm so grateful that for all that are in Christ, we too have a cycle of in our lives. It's a cycle of sin, confession of sin, and then forgiveness, which is made possible through the blood of Jesus Christ. We are so grateful for the forgiveness that comes through Jesus. God, there might be some here today who are really battling with, with a besetting sin they're discouraged over it. They're beating themselves up over it. They're living in guilt. They might have even confessed that sin and asked for forgiveness, but for whatever reason in their hearts, they don't feel like you have forgiven them. Would you speak to them this morning and show them the scriptures that make it abundantly clear that when we confess our sin, you are faithful 
to forgive us of our sins. Do not allow the enemy to distort our thinking or to deceive us into thinking that once we have confessed sin, it somehow is still there. That's not what your word teaches. I pray for all of the Christians in this room today as we walk this line between being in the world but still striving for holiness as one of your children. Give us wisdom. Show us how to do that. Help us to encourage one another and learn how to walk that fine line and help us all to be sensitive to the Holy Spirit as we navigate what it's like to live in a world that is lost. But as your people in Christ, we know the importance of holiness. So show us how to do that. We ask all of these things in Christ's name. Amen.